right, welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Dunn. Hi, I'm Chris. And today we're going to talk about Twin Peaks. Now, if you haven't listened to our previous conversation about Twin Peaks, you might want to go back and check that one out first. But here what we're doing today is we're kind of extending that conversation a little bit. This is one of our favorite shows, and uh, we want to talk about a theme within Twin Peaks that we think is uh, pretty prominent and pretty interesting and really uh pretty prominent in all of David Lynch's work, one of the uh, masterminds behind one of our favorite shows there. And this theme is the theme of dreams, Mm. theme of dreams. And so we're going to talk about dreams today. And uh, Chris, do you want to start us off with some context? Uh, Why might dreams be so important for David Lynch as a person? Yeah. um, You know, David Lynch... um is uh is clearly fascinated by the topic of dreams it 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 really crops up in essentially every uh film or show or work of art that i've seen him uh produce um in fact the last uh memoir that he uh he published last year is entitled room to dream um Mm. and there's just this this idea that um telling stories um either by the mode of dreams or um on the, on the subject of dreams has really just been his uh, vehicle of choice to tell the story um, or to communicate art. And um, it's really baked into so much of, of, of what he's done. Twin Peaks in particular, John, you and I have talked um, in the past about um, in that first season, there's a reference to dreams in almost every episode. Um, some of the most important revelations in the show um, occur through dreams or as a result of dreams. Um, one of my favorite moments is the, 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 the first time you're introduced to Bobby Briggs uh, and Norma and Shelley at the R&R. And he, mm. uh, he, you know, he flips a quarter into the jukebox and he looks over at Norma and says, I'll see you in my dreams. Right. And, uh, and that really does set sort of um, a, a tone for, uh, for what the rest of that show explores. Mulholland Drive then goes on um, as a real extensive exploration about dreams as its own subject. And yeah, that, it just, it, it's just clear to me that it's so immensely important uh, for David Lynch in his own storytelling and art. And mm-hmm. um, my, my hunch is also that it, it really does tie in with some of what he's done with Transcendental medita- Meditation, um, yeah. his, his experience with it and his, uh, his, his real, um, you know, his real belief in it um, as, as a way of life. Um, and, uh, you know, John, I know that you've done some work on, on, on at least uh, reading about David uh, and his experience with TM. Is, uh, is there anything that you wanted to add there? Yeah, well, it's clearly very important for him. I mean, it's uh, it's more than just a, a passion. Uh, I think it's it's kind of central to who he is. Uh, I've seen him give talks at uh, universities that were sort of founded by various uh, transcendental, um, you know, uh, groups. Right. Uh, um, there's one in Iowa, I believe, um, that he's been involved with, and. There are a number of yeah. other institutions. There are a number of other institutions I've seen him go around and 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 speak at and and you know entertain questions, Q and A kind of format, panel format, and um, it's just a it's just a huge passion uh, of his um, on the whole. And I think uh, you know when when you look at Twin Peaks and you look at his other uh, films and and artwork, it's clear that there's this quality to it that is is very dreamlike mm. and 
it seems it seems that transcendental meditation is is one of the kind of creative outlets uh or i should say it's one of the it's part of the creative process for Mm. him so so he talks uh at times about the idea of the creative process as kind of like going fishing Mm. and so and so creative ideas and and um images and and storylines and these things are are, are like things that he catches while he's fishing right it's not it's not like something that he creates it's something that's given to him it's something that he receives and so he often you know will will answer questions like you know when people ask you know what does this mean or where did you come up with this right. or what's this what's this all about he'll often say you know that that the the question doesn't really work for him mm-hmm. or those questions don't really work for him because it's not something that he came up with it's something that he caught it's something that he received yeah. i think that's a, that's an important um way to uh enter into you know david lynch's work if you know that that's how he operates that that's part of the creative process this kind of meditative reception of ideas rather than kind of brainstorming and writing down kind of, um, you know, what works. There's a, there's an intuitive quality to Mm. his work. And I think, um, I think the degree to which we kind of, um, follow that intuition with him, um, and follow the, the, uh, the, the emotive, uh, you know, feeling and vibe of the work that he's doing. I think the more it quote unquote makes sense. Um, I think if we approach Lynch's work with this kind of, um, rational, like logical frame of reference, um, you know, it's going to be something that maybe we're put off by. Um, and so I think, I think the transcendental meditation for him is, is just kind of central to the, the creative process. Um, and so it, it, it's something that, um, motivates his work and fuels his work but it's also something he explores right dreams are 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 things that he explores and i think this reflective meditative um you know mindset and background that he has just bleeds into all of his work not only because the creative process has kind of uh allowed for you know things like twin peaks to exist but twin peaks itself and other shows and and movies that he's been involved with explore the you know these concepts of of dreams and and meditative uh processes i mean remember uh going back to you know twin peaks uh season one with uh depending on how you count it the third episode or the Mm -hmm. or the second second episode right? right depending on whether the pilot is uh is episode you know, one or not yeah is episode one or not um when you when you get to that episode where where dale is is throwing bot uh rocks at bottles yeah, right it's a classic scene yeah and he talks about how he received this method in a dream mm-hmm. right that's how he describes you know where this technique came from right um and uh and of course at the end of that episode he actually has a dream right he actually witness this right. dream sequence in which we are introduced to the red room for the first time laura is there it's very and he sensitive. knows he knows who kills laura he knows who killed laura yeah. palmer at the end of that dream <laughs> right 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 and it's just um it's just fascinating right but but from the very get-go like you said with bobby saying i'll see you in my dreams or also in that third episode if if you call it the third episode third or second depending on how you count the pilot mm-hmm. um Audrey, you remember when uh, they when she's listening to the music, she she looks to Donna and says, isn't it so dreamy? Right. Right. There's and then she just starts dancing. And it's like this doesn't make sense. But in a kind of dreamy way, it makes total sense. There's this kind of dream logic for sure. 
to the whole thing, right? And uh, this whole dynamic of how dreams are uh, sort of themes and motifs and things that are actively reflected on. We, we watch dreams. We hear about dreams. There's dreamy-like sequences. Uh, I mean, dreams are just everywhere in Twin Peaks. One of the, one of the interesting things for me um, when we talk about dreams is this idea of um, the difference between the reality um, and the dream world. Um, and David Lynch doesn't necessarily have to uh, uh, press um, the line of reality and dreams the way that other movies do. I'm thinking of movies mm-hmm. like uh, Inception or movies like The Matrix, where that is, is in, in many ways the, the, the fundamental question is, you know, what is real? How do we know the difference between the dream world and the, the real world? You know, philosophy 101 type questions that, yeah. that we get. And, um, you know, for, for a movie like Inception, I, I really think that one of the aha moments is that we don't, we don't know. You don't really yeah. know where that line is. That's what um, causes... Um, What's his wife's character's name? Is it Mel or? Oh yeah, um, I forget exactly. But I, the I, cop's yeah. wife's name—I mean—that's what causes her to to um, to go insane. Um, but the the aha moment for me is that in the movie Inception, no matter how how you look at it, and I've seen all these you know info charts and maps that try <laughs> and chart out all the dreams and the dreams within the dreams and the layer the levels that you kind of kick kick up to. But yeah. I, I, I do think that that's all for naught at the end because the movie begins in limbo. It begins in the quote-unquote mm-hmm. unconstructed dream space. And mm-hmm. so there's no home territory preceding that from which to right. return home to. You're always right. essentially going to stay in limbo. And so you don't know if he pulls out of it or if he's just right. been in it from, from, the, from right. the start. Right. Um, right. And I see... So, I don't think that that's the kind of question when when Lynch takes up dreams. I don't think that that's the kind of question that Lynch um, is interested in. He he recognizes there's a line between dream and reality, but it's not as though um, oh it was all a dream, so it, it doesn't it doesn't matter anymore. Sure. Like that, that's that you know that that's not what's in play. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Because yeah. it's a dream, that's actually what he's interested in. What dreams mm-hmm. can reveal? What dreams right. can Right. Um, can tell us about people's desires, people's uh, wishes, people's uh, mm-hmm. um, regrets and ways they might want to revise history. Um, right. So when we talk about a movie like Mulholland Drive, yeah, uh, I, I've talked to people that were just disappointed that um, that they realized that, oh, most of this movie is a dream. Yeah. And um, as if then it doesn't matter. And, and I, right. I, I right. just think right. it's quite the opposite. It's because it's a dream. Um, that it's able to actually tell more. It's able to have mm-hmm. this sort of dreamlike quality that um, that we're able to uh, explore together and um, sort of be able to tell the story in more inventive ways, uh, more imaginative ways than maybe just a straight narrative would be able to. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think with uh, Lynch, you know, it's not like he uses you know, common tropes related to dreams, you know, like uh, Bob Newhart show or, or whatever ends with, you know, Bob Newhart waking up and uh, um, everything was all just a dream. And so the whole show just, you know, basically didn't happen. Right. right. Um, he, like you say, he is interested in what dreams reveal. And Mulholland Drive is just a classic example of that. Yeah. Um, and and um, additionally, you know, the the kinds of 
things that he's also interested in is like shared dreams sure. or uh, collective dreams. So I think of uh, Fire Walk With Me, right, where uh, Dale uh, comes up to Gordon Cole in Philadelphia, the mm-hmm. FBI head- headquarters, and says, you know, I have to tell you about this dream I had last night, right? And that's that uh, amazing sequence when Philip Jeffries, played by David Bowie, shows up uh, rather ominously and, and, and says all these esoteric things like, you know, we're not going to talk about Judy. Right, do, you know, right. do you know who that is right there? You know, and a lovely premonition about the whole uh, double Dale thing going on sure. right just just um so much is packed into that scene right. and it's just so wonderfully bizarre um it's it's my favorite it, moment in the whole twin peaks canon I mean, like oh, beginning when when he he's looking in the security camera and then he yes, checks yes, and then he's looking yes, and then he pauses yes. and and then david yes. bowie comes out of nowhere in the elevator right, it's amazing right. and and how wonderful that 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 infamous scene uh, is is not only taken up and reproduced in the return, right. but it's also made even more bizarre by the fact that there are multiple versions yes. of it. Because because Philip Jeffries says, yeah. you know, Gordon Cole will remember the unofficial He'll version. Remember the unofficial version. So so now now we have distorted memories to, yes. to add to the confusion and the absolute bizarreness right. of the episode. There's even that moment the, where Lynch is like, as Gordon Cole. I didn't even remember that part. Like, you know, oh, like as yes. he's telling the story, yes. something yes. something new occurs to him that he didn't even remember had occurred. Right. And, um, because uh, because uh, the the other agent was there. Oh, my. Why am I blanking on his name? Ma- um, yeah. Miguel Ferrer. Yeah. Miguel um, Ferrer's character. Um, You'll have to apologize for agent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> who, who lacks the social graces. Oh, this is so embarrassing. I mean, we're, we consider ourselves fans and we're blanking <laughs> on his name. But he also remembers something. He's like, I do remember. Like, that That sounds familiar. Or like, yeah, he I says, I, I'm remembering that too or something like that. Yes. Um, absolutely. And, absolutely. But the idea that the dreams can... Um, be shared among the, the the characters and then somehow possibly be potentially changed is 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 very interesting. Um, we know from Firewalk with me that um, that characters share dreams, um, and I think a classic example of that is is the fact that uh, Laura Palmer and Dale Cooper do not know each other. They've never met in real life, and yet she can recognize him because she's seen him in a dream. And it turns right. out that it's essentially the same dream that Dale Cooper himself has. And so they mm-hmm. they share the same dream. And um, it's only through, um, I think it's through Laura's journal that he comes to realize that they did share the same dream. Yeah, right. Um, and so that opens up all kinds of possibilities. I think it, it, it's it's relatable for the viewer because... Not that because we we live inside a shared dream necessarily or have that experience, but we at least know what it's like to have the 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 dream like logic in our own dreams that scenes mm. kind of change unexpectedly. Yeah, characters yeah. are there, but they're faceless. Um, mm-hmm. But even beyond that, that there's something strange that people have sort of these universal tropes of different kinds of dreams going oh, to the right. exam yeah. unprepared. Um, you know, uh, going to school naked or, um, yeah. you know, the flying dream or the, you know, right. being late to a train. These are sort of universal images that, that people all share. And, um, you know, there's, there's something that we all can sort of relate to. 
Lynch obviously takes that the step further by, by adding this element of characters sharing a dream and then still not being able to tell um, who's projecting that dream. Um, and right, right. This, this might be the, a good time to talk about Audrey because yes. that is the most... I was just thinking of Audrey. That is the most revealing, for me, the most reve- one of the most revealing scenes in, in all of Twin Peaks is you've, you've got this undeniably dreamlike moment where mm-hmm. um, you, know, you, you already immediately know something is wrong with her character. We, we, we last knew of her um, when she was at the bank, which is such a bizarre scene, but she's at the yeah. bank yeah. Uh, doing some kind of you know, civil disobedience. And then right, right. Um, we don't know if she's, she died in the explosion or not. Um, we assume that she did, but there she is in season three and she's with a diminutive man named Charlie and mm-hmm. we get the feeling something is completely wrong here. Something is wrong with the world that she's living in. She goes to the roadhouse now, which is our world, even though none of the characters in Twin Peaks talk about Audrey as though she's alive in, you know, in the story. And, you know, when she goes into Audrey's dance, <laughs> right. which, uh, which, you know, echoes that, that dreamlike yeah. quality that you were alluding right. to earlier, um, things start to break down. The dream starts to unravel until the point where you're in this unconstructed white space. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, she, she doesn't quite know perhaps where she is. But mm-hmm. there, there's, there's something to the theory, and, and, and several people have posited this, that, um, that something is being projected for her. So it's not mm-hmm. as though she's necessarily sharing the dream, but somebody is sort of putting a dream in front of her um, and and giving her a dream space to inhabit and therefore mm. sort of controlling her reality and that mm. starts to break down by um, by by one of these one of these characters anyways I I, I mean I, yeah. I don't have that worked out but I'm sure that you've got thoughts on, yeah. on Audrey no no I mean I think the thing about that that's so fascinating um, is yeah this space that she's in uh, you hear the crackle of the electricity yes um, and then when it cuts to the credits you have the band playing backwards and it's you just get this kind of you know black Lodgian kind of quality to it I mean we don't know what, where Audrey is um, you know if this is uh, you know this is the true reality and if this is a maybe a, a lodge captivity or what I I mean, right. it's so it's so un, it's so unclear. But what I love about that scene is that we don't actually see Audrey. We see a projection of Audrey. Mm. Right. We see we see her looking in a mirror, which, of course, echoes the very first shot of Twin yes. Peaks where, where we see Josie. Right. So we don't even we don't even see Josie there. We see we see uh, Josie's uh, image projected. And, and this plays into the whole idea of twin peaks right, right. this this uh, duality and the whole concept of uh, fractured selves and multiple selves and shadow selves and right. uh, projections of a self and all, all these different things that are you know repeated throughout um, but there's a, I think an extra layer to this with Audrey because we see her looking into a mirror and when we compare what we see in the immediately preceding episodes with Audrey she's kind of dressed like Snow White she kind of looks hmm. like Snow White 
Snow White, and and this Charlie guy who's short in stature, you know, many yes. have have, yeah. have commented on, you know, there's kind of this seven, you know, seven, seven dwarves, dwarves kind of thing with 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 um with Snow White, and then of course we see her looking in a mirror, you know, like uh, right. who's the fairest of them all, right? There's this kind of Snow White quality to it, which I don't know uh, how it all like blends into this, but right. I think there's. But I think that I think it's part of it. You know, I think there's something about that that um, there's something deeper there. And another thing about reality and this kind of uh, blending of reality and sort of dreamlike world is I'm not entirely sure, but I think this is the same episode where we have um, Edward Lewis uh, Severson uh, playing his uh, playing his song right. at, at the Roadhouse. As, with Eddie, as Eddie Vedder, but as Edward right. Lewis Severson. Right, yeah. right. So we have the front man of Pearl Jam playing a song under his real name, not right. his uh, pseudonym, uh, his, his, his musical Pearl Jam alias. Name. Yeah. yeah, his Pearl Jam name. And um, that's really interesting because it's it's like the real world bleeding into this fictional space of Twin Peaks. And you almost wonder if Audrey is this kind of, at least in the white space, if, if it's kind of, um, you know, real, real Audrey, if there's this yeah. kind of. Yeah. So, so that so that so that she's been pulled into so she's been pulled out of this fictional space right. uh, and there's this weird kind of blending of, of fictionality and reality and yeah. there's more to, or, there's more to say about that too because you know you think about the end of the show where um, I'm sure you've heard this right the the owner of the Palmer House is the woman who opens the door like in right. real life in real the life. Woman who, yeah, the woman yeah. who owns that house. You just gave me chills. The, I know, but that's, exactly. that's insane. Is, yeah, is the woman who opens the door uh, and says that she's, um, you know, Miss Chalfont or whatever. Right. Uh, and, and so you, you get you get these elements of like reality and fictionality blending into right. each other. Which is a signature uh, for Lynch. I mean, we've talked about this with Sunset Boulevard. That that's yeah, that's yeah. that's sort of one of the things that I'm convinced that Lynch loves about the movie is that the characters. Um, the actors that portray the characters in the film um, mirror perfectly the lives that they portray. And so there's uh, Cecil B. DeMille as himself. Um, And there's Norma Desmond being played by Gloria Swanson, but they're playing the same role. And, and the, and the Butler um, is essentially mirroring the, the character of the former director. Right. And, and so when David Lynch enters into his own world as as Gordon Cole, yeah, yeah, um, he, he's he's some he's somehow very aware that he's he's allowing reality to impinge on this. And this is one of the things that you and I um, have talked about, and that we love about it too, is that um, there's just these 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 casting decisions or personnel decisions that end up making their way into the story, and they're they're inextricable, and they're just mm-hmm. allowed to play play together. So right. um, the actress who plays Ronette Pulaski, right? Um, she's also undeniably the American girl in the purple she is. room. She is, but she's she not is. as Ronette Pulaski, <laughs> right. even though she's any Twin American Peaks fan girl. will know. Yeah, that's, that's Ronette Pulaski. <laughs> right, so, right. So that ambiguity is is there. Lynch will know that it's there, and and he'll mm. just allow that to sort of you know, play off of each other. So, you know, when you say that Audrey um, may not be a character as Audrey in the sort of the time sequence of the world of Twin Peaks, as that Mm -hmm. story unfolds, um, she might just be sort of our, our, you know, retrieval of Audrey as we remember her. 
you know, and yeah. so she's she's doing the dance, <laughs> right? You know, she's right. She's doing the things we might expect her to do, um, but it's it's you know, there's there's levels removed from it. It's a different kind of abstraction from it, and that's uh, that's that's really what um, he might be after. We've talked we uh, we haven't talked yet about Chet Desmond, and I think this is probably the right place to talk about him. Yeah. Um, so Fire Walk with Me begins with that sequence where it's basically the negative Twin Peaks. I mean, it's, it's yeah, Twin Peaks, right. but not, you know, yeah. the, the, the sheriff station is there, but it's not filled with chipper, uh, you mm-hmm. know, sort of right. um, goofy people, but, you know, pretty mean-spirited folk. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that in and of itself, um, where where Chris Isaac's character um, is is essentially playing, you know, the sequence that Kyle MacLachlan was supposed to play. Right. Um, and, and, you know, so Chet, you know, Chet's role is full, fulfilled by, by Chris Isaac. And then we never hear from Chris Isaac ever again. Yeah, he just, right, he right. just disappears as quickly as he disappears under that trailer. Um, right. And uh, that's just, these are, these are constantly examples of where um, the casting decisions look and feel regrettable and yet um, work perfectly with, the kind of story that Lynch has been trying to tell. So it doesn't yeah. surprise me at all, you know, that, um, that that's happened, that we have two Sheriff Trumans um, with this sort right. of flimsy story of, of, of him, um, you know, being ill. Um, yeah. Or, you know, we have two Donnas and yeah, Moira yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah. even, you know, remotely look like Lara Flynn Boyle. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, stuff like that is just constantly fascinating to me that whether they're accidental or not, um, they work perfectly well. There's this spurious account in Mulholland Drive where fans are certain that um, that Cheryl Lee is in Club Silencio in the audience with, really? uh, with Ronette Pulaski. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pull up the I'll pull up the the, the images later and uh, we might be able to post it. But it's a. Uh, it's it's fascinating. People, she's not credited, um, but none of the people in the theater are credited in that movie, hmm. and uh, it's it's you know he was you know some fans have gone so far as to be convinced that that's that that must have been Cheryl Lee, um, hmm. and David Lynch just smiles when he whenever he's asked about it. He's like, oh, it must really? have been the Dugpa of Cheryl Lee. <laughs> um, <laughs> well. Well, did you know the uh, original kind of narrative for Mulholland Drive was actually kind of telling Audrey's story as she went off to L.A. to try to become a big movie star? Huh, did you, I think did I you, did hear about that. Yeah. yeah. So it was originally kind of intended as a kind of Twin Peaks spinoff, um, but then it just kind of took on a life of its own. And, right. And uh, yeah, no. So there's interesting developments along yeah. the way. And the theater yeah. itself, Club Silencio, is yes, the it, is the yes. is the place where the 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 giant. Exactly. the fireman yep. and um what is the character's name who's, um, who's jamming out uh, to the jukebox music uh uh Ma- madame uh what is her name uh, senorita dido See, that's Sen- right senorita dido yep 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 exactly that is, that is exactly. so funny oh man now now um with with these um kind of happy accidents which you know Lynch loves there's plenty of them in in season one and these casting things and 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 various things um the the casting thing that I am most drawn to and just the imagery of it especially 
is having Laura Dern play Diane and Kyle right, right. Uh, uh, opposite of Kyle as uh, Dale Cooper. Sure. Um, and I think especially though of the image at the end of episode 17, when they kind of go through that dark space and it's, it's Kyle with his black hair and mm-hmm. Gordon with his white hair and Diane with her red hair yep. walking down this dark corridor towards, uh, towards this the basement uh, door. Of the great Northern. Yeah. Yeah. The basement of the great Northern. And there's something so iconic about this, you know, it, it's so meta I feel because here you have, you have you have uh, David Lynch with you know two of his uh, star actors throughout his career. Sure, but you also have the 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 black room kind of colors uh, being kind of like uh, just uh, exemplified in that moment right. where you have this red, white, and black going on with their yeah. hair. Yeah, uh, and, and, Diane and it's, herself. So visually, it's stunning. Diane herself is is an embodiment of of the waiting room. I mean, the red she hair, she's, and she's, she's got, got the got alternating the fingernails, fingernails, black and white. Yes, and exactly. um, you know, when she does her transformation, um, which we'll talk about, um, you know, there it's 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 basically coinciding coinciding with the colors and and the red room itself and. We'll we'll just have to do another thing about Diane. I mean, there's so much to talk about there. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think I think since we're talking about dreams, we ought to uh, uh, bring it to this fundamental question sure. uh, about ca- perhaps the most iconic dream of the return, mm-hmm. which is the Monica Bellucci. The dream. Monica Bellucci dream. And so yes. and so, Chris. So Chris, I I'm curious to know who is the dreamer. Yeah. Yes. I love that it's the Monica Bellucci dream, not a exactly. Monica Bellucci dream. Exactly. It's, it's, that goes back to your point about tropes and yeah. reoccurring dreams. This yeah. is a reoccurring dream. Right. I had the Monica Bellucci dream and Albert, his name was Albert. Albert rolls his eyes and goes, oh, here, here we go again. I've, I've heard this dream exactly. multiple times. Exactly. Um, the, the question that's posed um, and is, is probably the question of, of the whole film is who is the dreamer? Um, and, um, you know, it just occurred to me now, he looks back because Monica Bellucci is looking behind his shoulder and David Lynch looks back and he sees a younger version of himself Mm. sort of listening into these headphones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, that, that works perfectly with what I'm about to say, (laughs) which is, uh, that I think on some level it's undeniable that this is Lynch's world. Um, yeah. You know, and to what extent that Mark Frost is is sort of helping us broker that dream, um, Frost as well. But I think this is uh, this this is in some level is a dream that that Lynch has laid out, um, and uh, we are inhabiting and being able to participate in. I just mm-hmm. rewatched uh, Eraserhead um, this past week, and what stood out to me, um, I mean, the movie is still as as powerfully shocking and confusing and confounding as it was the first time i saw it yeah but um what's 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 amazing to me was how much of the imagery of eraserhead makes its way into sort of the Mm. architecture of twin peaks yeah Um, yeah. and there's so many i there's so many to count even the the circular sort of portal to the to the to the waiting room of the black lodge um that that sort of circle of rocks is is there um you know uh, Henry's bedroom has a picture of the mushroom cloud of the atomic bomb. Um, mm-hmm. the, even the tree-like structure that's near his bed yeah, really, yeah. really reminds us of that. The 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 white black floor 
of, yeah. of, of the room is also sort of making an appearance there in the elevator scene. So, so much of that sort of carries itself over into Twin Peaks. And I just feel like these are such, such personal mm-hmm. reoccurring themes for him. And um, this is sort of the stuff that makes David Lynch him. And um, mm-hmm. he, he invites us to take place in it. Um, you know, the, the, other thing, and I'm not sure if it's us as dreamers as well, or just us as being able to share in sort of this collection of, of films and movies, but um, there's no other way for me to, to understand why he quotes movies the way he does. You uh, know, yeah. some, some directors quote movies because they're fans. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll see like uh, Kill Bill, you know, and if you're a movie buff, um, you'll just see all the samurai movies or all the Hong Kong cinema yeah, movies that Tarantino yeah, yeah. just, just you know, or, or the spaghetti westerns. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You're right. You're right. I mean, Tarantino is drawing upon a lot, and in they're, his films, they're, yeah. they're just they're they're references there because he's um, he's a fan and he he wants to do that. So you know, uh, La La Land I think is another example of if, um, um, of of the director just being such a fan of that genre of movies and you know doing as many quotes as you can and I think there's like a hundred of them there's just so many mm-hmm. I don't think that's what Lynch is doing I mean it's it's entirely possible that he's a fan of Breaking Bad and so mm-hmm. he um, you know he 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 creates scenes that that evoke those memories but he does it in such an odd way where you're 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 just visually aware that these parallels mm-hmm. are occurring. So in mm-hmm. a scene, um, you know, you're in the Las Vegas suburbs and it has that sort of yellowish tint yeah, to it. Yeah, that deserty suburb. Yeah. Yep, yep, and, yep. you know, a car hood is, you know, flown across a roof. Um, mm-hmm. And then you do a quick cut to somebody strung out on drugs, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then you do a quick cut to, you know, Jade. Jade gives two rides. Uh, Jade, at a car wash. <laughs> at a car yeah. wash yeah. that, yeah. you know, looks like Bogdan's car wash. Yeah, it's it's not to say like, oh, this is cool. You know, we're a fan of Breaking Bad. It's 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 more to to just make us aware that we're all sharing these. Yeah, this this world together and we're sort of inhabiting it and and allowing Mm -hmm. it to sort of play into the to the storyline. And the other one that, you know, that gets talked about a lot is is Tarantino. Um, Yeah. Chantel and Hutch. (laughs) Tim Roth's character, Chantel and Hutch. They are Tarantino-style hitmen yes. in character in yep. in the world of Twin Peaks, and, and they die in a Tarantino-like shootout, totally a, uh, abrupt explosion of violence that is unexpected and over the top. Absolutely, and but and also and crucially set up by you know just chit chat over you know yes, behind the steering yes. wheel and like eating snacks or eating a taco uh, yes, or whatever yes eating cheetos it's... yeah something so mundane <laughs> exactly exactly but like it's it's all there to really give you that that impression that you know we're all aware that they're not bad caricatures of tarantino hitman they, but they still are evoking mm-hmm. that and so mm-hmm. you know it's almost winking at us when they do right. the i love you chantal yeah. i love you hutch you know, I mean, that's that's the iconic Pulp Fiction line. Pulp Fiction, yeah, yep. um, yeah. And you know, so all that to say, you know, in terms of who is the dreamer, I'm 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 really attracted to the ideas that that we share um, something uh, in in this world that that's being that's being presented to us, um, mm-hmm. and that we participate in it um, in in odd ways, whether it's just mm-hmm. recognizing 
some of the visual um, raw material that that starts to construct that world um, mm -hmm. or whether it's just sort of winking at us um, as viewers you know when when um, when when uh, James's character <laughs> when James's character makes the appearance at the roadhouse and yes. sings just you and just I you. just you yep, and yep. you know just me or whatever um, yep. I mean that that's just that's just you know, that's just such a nod to the viewers yeah. that are saying, you know, I'm here for you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Let's yeah. let's let's just all let's just all enjoy this moment together and let's let's yeah. refire up this this baby one more time. And <laughs> yeah. uh, he the the whole show is full of those. And for fans, I think it really is sort of a, a, a an appreciation letter, sort of a, a nod to say, you know, yeah. let's 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 share this world together and let's be a part mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I really love the idea that the the dreamer is this kind of collective uh, role that we all play. I think there's something to that, and I think it fits, uh, you know, Lynch's artistic style and his kind of desire for for us as fans really to kind of come up with our own sort of you know interpretation along the way. Yeah. I, I would say hermeneutically, there is a kind of reader response thing going on. On, where Twin Peaks is as much David Lynch and Mark Frost creation as it is something that we perpetually create, right? Yeah. And I and I think that that ultimately is kind of in the DNA of Twin Peaks, especially in the return, because it wouldn't exist without the fan community and all of the the uh, publications of the um, Wrapped in Plastic magazine right, right. Uh, that that John Thorne uh, started, and really the rise of the internet and so sort of like fan community was able to be kind of uh, fostered in that way. And so um, I think I think there is something about this kind of uh, communal creation of Twin Peaks. Yeah. Uh, and so that it's kind of this, and it fits the idea of the collective dream and this kind of participation in a shared dream. I think all of that works and I'm really uh, fond of the idea. But <laughs> uh, if I was going to say that there was something canonical, right, within the world of Twin Peaks, uh, internal to the narrative, uh, that provides a good explanation for who the dreamer is, I mean, there are some maybe some natural uh, ideas that might pop up like, well, maybe it's Audrey, given given her uh reaction at right. the end of episode episode 16 um and and the fact that we know that there was something going on maybe this is her dream uh another thought is well maybe it's laura's dream like for example we hear sarah yell laura mm -hmm. right at the end of uh episode 18 mm -hmm. and and is that sarah's uh, then, voice or is that leland's yeah, voice it is no no it's sarah's voice yeah huh. and 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 then of course laura um but carrie page version of laura right she screams this blood-curdling scream right. so iconic you know and 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 the lights go out and you almost wonder if is this laura waking up from her nightmare right right is, is this, this laura... itself the dream unraveling right yeah so 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 one thought is okay maybe it's laura waking up uh maybe maybe audrey's dreaming but i would say to be honest the the best evidence points to this being uh dale cooper's dream if we're if we're just sticking to kind of internal canon type uh, uh, evidence, mm -hmm. because because in episode seventeen, when you know Dirty Cooper has been defeated, Dirty right? Dale, yep. Dirty Dale, yeah, whatever you want to call him. Um, you know, when 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 Dirty Dale is defeated, uh, and and everyone's there in the sheriff's station, it's this beautiful reunion. But then it's like 
of course it's David Lynch, so it has to get weird, right? <laughs> and as soon as as soon right, David David Lynch can't just give us a normal happy ending, right? So as soon as as soon as Dale sees uh, Diane's true self and she reveals herself, um, uh, or N- Nido, uh, uh, you know, uh, reveals that she's Diane, right? Yep. Um, and in in that moment. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, Dale's face is superimposed right. upon upon the screen, and it's like, why is this happening right now? Mm-hmm. But what's super important about this is, as all of these um, kind of uh, happy ending type things are taking place, this face calls us to I don't know question or uh, at least reiterate at least yeah it, well it causes us to to really kind of um, wonder what what we're actually watching and then there's this moment where that that superimposed face of Dale says we live inside a dream mm-hmm. right which is an mm-hmm. obvious callback to the Monica Bellucci dream sure and I and I feel like the fact that we're asked to know who the dreamer is by Monica Bellucci, and then and then Gordon reiterates it in that scene, right? Yeah. Um, when he first tells about the Monica Bellucci dream, the fact that Dale reiterates that point, we yeah. live inside a dream, makes me think that that this might be Dale's dream. Mm-hmm. Now, now that I think is an interesting um, interesting idea, but where this could get even more interesting potentially yeah. is for as an article uh that was recently put out on the 25 years later website which is a great twin peaks yeah i, uh, I love it and i've read yeah. it, i read it constantly <laughs> great yeah yeah which is a great uh twin peaks fan website uh for those of you who uh would be interested in reading some essays and things well there's this recent essay about dale being the dreamer but also about the implications of what that might mean right. so you think of you think of about um, how how David Lynch deals with uh, fractured reality, fractured self, and um, especially in Mulholland Drive, right? Sure. Where where you have uh, Acts one and two uh, with Betty, you know, being this bright-eyed, um, you know, young young Hollywood woman starlet, on her right on her Hollywood rise. Starlet on her rise it's the hollywood dream right sure. and then dream kind of you know kind of pun intended with this kind of multiple layered sense right yes. um and 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 then diane awakes right for act three right. and we realize as, as was, betty right or or, or um uh yeah so vice so, versa so, yeah, yeah. So she she awakes and she recognize and 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 you you start to slowly realize that Acts one and two was this kind of you know processing of a um, hit that she uh, put on her ex girlfriend, whatever whatever their relationship exactly was, but right. this other other star whom you know she. Uh, uh, you know, believed was not actually a star for the the right reasons, mm-hmm. right? But but because of sexual advances with the director and that sort of thing, right? And so and so uh, so she imagines this scenario in which maybe she escaped this you know um, hit on her, right? And 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 um, and and so so she's she's processing she's processing casting herself in a better light than yeah. she she truly was. Right. It's glorified. Pro- it's it's glorified. completely yep. like putting yep. Rita in her yep. place too. My favorite yes. scene is yep. when they're doing that yes. dialogue together. They're doing the scene, and you know you know Rita's lines are stilted and she's awkward. Yep. Are you going to call yeah. the cops? Like it's really yeah. really bad acting. 
Right, and, right. Um, and when Naomi and does the, the scene, obviously she knocks it out of the park. Nails, so it's completely nails. glorifying so, sort of her, totally. her role in it, totally. for sure. And, uh, and appreciating Rita not being a good actor, it really doesn't come through until like the second or third watch. Right? Oh, absolutely. Because, because you don't think anything of it. It's just she's just helping her with her line reading. But on rewatching it, it's like, oh, yeah, she's yeah. being portrayed as an awful actress in her, in her dream. Right. Well, let me just uh, help you develop this because I'm fascinated. And I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to forget it because I um, but Betty. um there's there's hints throughout the movie that she probably is processing her not just the guilt of 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 putting the hit on Rita, but she might have been the victim of sexual abuse herself. And so the scenes oh. that she keeps reading are of of either of oh, some kind of ancestral yes. or some oh, kind of bad relationship when she was younger, and it's oh, completely wow. torn her life apart. And wow. so she might be exercising sort of that sort of that sort of past of sexual abuse as well. In sort of retelling that whole story, some people even go so far as to think that the that some of that might be represented in the elderly couple that, you know, oh, that ultimately end that, up causing uh, her. I mean, I mean, you know, when yeah, that elderly couple is definitely um, curious, and I think that's yeah, that's a whole extra layer to this. And I I, I don't doubt that there are layers upon layers. Um, at at the very least, she is regretting the decision to uh, you know hire a hitman yes uh but but that idea of how this might segue into processing um other past trauma uh is is i think quite interesting and fruitful for for where i'm headed with this because what 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 they say in the uh, 25 years later uh piece is that essentially given that that's the way that that David Lynch likes to deal with fractured self and mm-hmm. processing of trauma where, where there is um, when he do, when he deals with fractured selves, it is primarily as part of this process of trauma. Right. right. Think about think about um, how Diane sees herself outside of the hotel right yes. before they before they go in the hotel together. There's this disassociative uh, kind of. Uh, thing going on where right. she can kind where she um, she sees herself outside of herself. Mm-hmm. She's 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 disassociating disassociating herself from what she's a part of, and of course there's a trauma that she has to deal with, right? In 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 connecting with uh, somebody who was sexually abusive to her, right? Right. right. Uh, with Dirty Dale in in the past, and of course this is. Um, you know, four thirty Dale about to become richer. Sure. So there's all kinds of weirdness, right? Absolutely. But, but, One of the most bizarre but, scenes. I'm still not sure I can make heads or tails with. But and um so I mean the the begging question becomes what trauma is, exactly. is Richard or that's, Dale trying that, to deal with. That that's exactly right. And here's kind of where the article comes down. Essentially the trauma that 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 Dale is is processing as the dreamer and and the fractured self is is kind of part of this processing is the trauma of his own uh, uh, Involvement in the murder of Laura Palmer Hmm. and that is obviously a more sinister take on one of our favorite Absolutely. Uh, television characters. Right. So it is a, it is a brutal uh, recasting of this character. But if we think about it for a second, there is something um, about the Dale that we meet in, you know, seasons one and two that is uh, potentially could be viewed as a projection. Right. right. He's he's super charming and clever. He's, um, you know, super uh, intuitive. And um, he is. Uh, a white knight yeah. who uh, 
um, you know, has has all these great intentions. And you, you could almost see how um, you can almost see how this this theory could have some uh, some legs to it. And, no, absolutely. Uh, and it really does explain because if, if you can chart anything through uh, Dale Cooper's uh, sort of story arc, he is the White Knight. He is rescuing Audrey at the Red Room. He's constantly yeah. trying to rescue Sarah Palmer. Um, you know, through, Laura Palmer. I mean, I keep saying Sarah. Laura, yeah. <laughs> he constantly is trying to rescue Laura Palmer um, and constantly trying to lead her through to even her even rescue. trying to undo her death. Even yeah, absolutely. Undo, that, that is the classic Betty uh, dream, right? That right. is that is Diane's dream of herself as Betty, right? Saving Rita, uh, right? From, taking her from in, yeah, taking yeah. her in, and sort of yeah. being sort of the, the 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 rescuer, being sort of and what better hero than sort of the FBI agent who inexplicably shows up in a small town and right. you know, charms everybody. He's even. You know, there's there's even um, remember there's part of his backstory is Wyndham Earl's wife, and you know yeah. he gets caught up in there and he can't save her there, and that sort of becomes sort of a demon that he's co- constantly haunted by. It has a lot to explain mm-hmm. for sure. A lot of um, a lot of what's going on. It, it has um, explanatory value. Definitely yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. The fly in the ointment for me though is the end of Firewalk with me. Mm. Right, like like. It, his presence with Laura there, um, because Laura is kind of triumphant and mm-hmm. and it's, she's kind of crying and laughing at the same time. Right, the ugly cry. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like I feel like that scene loses its power hmm. if if Dale standing beside her is you know the one who ultimately is responsible for Laura Palmer's death. Yeah. Um, that that kind of loses a lot of its power for me. Yeah, except except if if you're if you're accepting the premise that uh, that Dale is the only dreamer um, from which we okay. can understand all these stories, because you know just like we talked about um, outside the film, uh, David Lynch and you know Mark Frost, or even potentially ourselves as 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 sort of adding um, adding elements to the story. Um, we, we, we should prepare ourselves for the possibility that people, um, are seeing multiple dreams or sharing different kinds of dreams. And there could be different dreamers within the story of Twin Peaks. The Mm. reason I say this is because again, if Mulholland Drive, if we, if we go back to that, um, I used to understand and, uh, and, uh, uh, think about Mulholland Drive simply as Betty's dream or as Diane's Mm. dream. And right. it, it, you know, everything that is at the tw- the last twenty five percent of the film that we see, basically provides the raw material and the images and the characters that we go back, boom, and and it sort of is recast in this stylized, you know, glorified version of of how she wished things could be or or how how things went wrong. But, you know, I, you know, the the more that I watch Lynch and the more that I watch his other films, I pay attention to whenever somebody's head hits the pillow. <laughs> And mm, that's the yeah. first scene of Mulholland Drive is you don't right, see whose right. head hits the pillow. You just exactly. see a head hit the pillow. Right. Um, when right. somebody goes to sleep, um, there's the potential for us to get access to what that, that sleeping person is dreaming. And mm. the kicker for me is that there's plenty of times in Mulholland Drive where Rita herself is sleeping. Yeah. She, she leaves the limo in the beginning of the film 
and she um, she's concussed and she sleeps outside the apartment, wakes up, right, tries right. to ha- hide from the ant and then sleeps under the table, mm-hmm. goes in the shower and then goes to sleep again. Um, yeah. And so there's plenty of times where, where she, she falls asleep. And in my mind, I'm now thinking that there are possible dreams within Betty's dream that sort sure. of inform. One of them might even be the Winky scene. Where oh um, yeah no that's a good where, point because uh, it is yeah that no, because great. sequentially that matches up when when Rita yeah. falls asleep that's where we get that scene um, you know it it breaks down a little bit because Betty does see uh, Betty does see the dude um, you know oh that's over, true you're you're right you're right and yeah, uh, he, he's just a guy standing <laughs> at the cashier yeah exactly I, we love the fact that you know the cowboy is just some dude at the yeah, party that just party, walks yeah. by for like two seconds yeah and he becomes yeah. this this elusive figure yeah, throughout the yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. um, but all that to say that there's there's certainly the possibility that we can get um, different characters providing um, so, some of the dream narrative as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we can still hold on to the fact that Dale is sort of, um, you know, the principal sort of cohesive dreamer that, that might be revisiting things and, and recharacterizing and reframing things. But that in in and through that there we there there might be other dreams as well, and that certainly needs to be the case, uh, mm. you know, because, you know, of what we know from Audrey, um, and and things like that. There's that crazy Billy character that's you know just bleeding yes, out of the jail cell, right. and um, yep. in that disembodied head state that we we're talking about at the end. I mean, that's right around the time that Billy sleeps in the in the cell, um, and there's. That can't be an accident. I, you know, they're, they're, like I said, I'm, I'm constantly aware of when people sleep in that movie. Um, and for him to sleep in such a crucial moment, to me, um, mm. at least opens up possibilities that we're, we're looking at different, different kinds of dreams. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good point. And, ma- and maybe too, maybe it's not that Dale killed Laura Palmer, but maybe that he's processing some uh, sense of uh, regret about not saving her from, you know, what happened. Right. Uh, so that's, so that maybe, it, maybe, maybe it's still some trauma that he's processing. Uh, and who knows exactly what his involvement or lack of involvement, right? Sin of uh, omission rather than commission, right? right? It could, it, there could be a number of uh, ways to think about a trauma that he's processed yeah. uh, or is, is processing. I, there's something, um, there's something, there's something though that, um, that, that is attractive of the idea that he really is the bad guy in this. Um, and mm-hmm. that he's this, ex, sort of exculp, exculpating himself, um, mm-hmm. which might even explain Bob. It might even explain, mm-hmm. um, the evil know, that meant the do. way that, yeah. yeah, the way that you rationalize something is that something uh, ah, oh, me. this is good. Yeah, this is yeah. great. And, and in fact, in fact, that's the tension of Bob because it's like, did Leland do it? And and of course, it's like, well, gosh, this is a horrible story to tell. Yes. So if, if he's possessed, then it's like culpability yes. is is uh, kind of uh, brought down. Um, but then you get this tension where it's like. Is Bob real? Is Bob psychological? And in season two, right? I mean, obviously, I think season three kind of course corrects some of this. But in season two, you kind of get this, especially as David Lynch has uh, ceased to kind of uh, be, you know, kind of the the ringleader. Yeah. Uh, uh, you kind of get this tension of like, well, maybe Bob is 
the evil that men do, right? And so mm-hmm. it kind of uh, kind of psycho- psychologizes uh, the idea of Bob a little bit, and uh, uh, and so that Bob is a personification, not an, an actual uh, person, if, right? You know, if that uh, yeah makes sense. Uh, but I think I think yeah I think that I think you're. Um, you're right about this whole idea about kind of it is a disassociative thing where it's like, oh, I didn't really do that. Yeah, Bob, Bob did it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although, I mean, I in my heart, I don't want to. I don't want to go down this road. I mean, like I, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned before, that Dale Cooper is one of my favorite characters, and um, yes, you yes, know, I, I, I love the idea of of Special Agent Dale Cooper, um, but you know, to the extent that Dougie. Um, is in some way a form of Dale. You know, he loves coffee and he, he, yeah. he he's, he's drawn to lawmen. I think we're, we're, we're supposed to also believe then that Mr. C yeah. is somehow, you know, yeah. some, some of the more vile parts of his own character, you know, just yep. in sort of purified form. We can't mm-hmm. just attribute that completely to Bob. Because, um, you know, Bob is Bob nor Mike is involved in Dougie. Um, yeah, and so that that becomes inconvenient <laughs> to mm-hmm. the idea of a of a pure of a pure Cooper, and mm-hmm. um, and if that's the case, that's that's a little that's a little bit of a downer. <laughs> it is it is a little bit of a downer, but there is something fascinating about the idea, um, and, and again, it it fits Lynch's work as as a way of, um, you know, the the way that he likes to tell stories of trauma is with fractured selves yeah. and 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 of course we get a lot of fractured um selves of of dale and uh then the question is okay well what's the trauma that he's that he would be processing right, right? right. if and if he's the dreamer this would only perpetuate that idea yeah yeah i need to think about this some more you know right. um yeah you know it just it, it dawns on me that um when when we talk about shared dreams, um, you know Betty and Diane, um, and then the Rita character. If 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 they're sort of doing dreams within dreams, there's this moment where Jacob, um, the hitman, uh, I call him Jacob because yeah, he was Jacob yeah, and Lost. Lost. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The, the, He's got two colored eyes, and mm. and 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 uh, you know it's it's one of those moments where you start to realize. You know, you know, he he might sort of embody sort of a blending of of both of these dream spaces mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he obviously is intimately tied to the destiny of both of, of these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, That's good. But yeah. if they're shared dreamers, then um, and we allow that possibility, then who is who is the the secondary dreamer? Right. Um, and and that might add sort of the the, the layer of complexity. Um, yeah. These things work on one level. You know, Mulholland yep. Drive works on the level of Betty being the sole dreamer. Just like mm-hmm. Twin Peaks might work on on Dale being, you know, the one dreamer, but I think that there's plenty of evidence elsewhere to show that that it gets a little bit more complex than that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's really great, and you know, I think this has been a, a fantastic conversation. We've covered quite a bit of ground, but of course, we haven't covered all the ground no, that could be covered. Not at all. Uh, we, we've only scratched the surface, really. Uh, but I think this is uh, probably a good time for us to uh, uh, bring the conversation to a close. And uh, it was a fabulous conversation. And of course, we'll we'll be addressing Twin Peaks again at some other point. And we ought to address Mulholland Drive. We do. Some, it deserves. It deserves detail. its own. It deserves its own uh, t- topic for sure. And uh, but this is fun. We we need to do it again. Cheers.
If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com.